Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, September the 10th, uh, 2022. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, to another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have responses um, and um, dispatches uh, from the African continent and other colonial territories on the death of Queen Elizabeth II and the imperialist legacy of Britain. The South African province of Mpumalanga has endorsed uh, African National Congress President Cyril Ramaphosa to stand for another term as ruling party leader. The militaries of Benin and Rwanda are holding talks on greater cooperation between the two states, and dozens of civilians have lost their lives in further rebel attacks in the West African state of Mali. In the second hour, we listened to an address by James Baldwin on the fire next time. Finally, we look back on the 51st anniversary of the 1971 Attica Rebellion. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the orchestras of Lipui uh, <clears throat> Lipui and Kamali uh, from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Let's listen in. <laughs> Na kolela yo 
moto Nala tenge banyo koringa isimana yo Nakei oye baoyo saringa Toboti te mama e sanifami e soni Wodeti de masua obo sanifete na mokabi Masua nanga mama na zongi koka Masua nanga yeye Obebisi mama bikila
Today is uh, Saturday, September 10th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And that uh, was a collection of music, uh, classic Pan-African music uh, from the uh, Orchestra Lepoy, as well as the Orchestra Kamali. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. Our lead story deals, of course, uh, with the fallout uh, surrounding uh, the passing of the British monarch, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, just two days ago. And uh, according to one report, um, Clement uh, Maniela Taylor spoke uh, to a columnist, a commentator, and an author, uh, Victor uh, Go Maswana, uh, about the legacy of the late Queen Elizabeth II on the African continent. On the one hand, there are many people across the world uh, who are saddened by the late monarch's passing. And then uh, there are others uh, who are either apathetic or celebratory following the news. Uh, This tricky line can simply be boiled down to her legacy and her historic 70-year-long reign. Though there is some merit in arguments uh, that the late monarch saw through the dissolution of the British colonial reign, there's also merit in that she simply lived through it. This is because, according uh, to uh, Gomoswana, uh, her reign uh, saw countries colonized by Britain establish their independence, but then became uh, a part of the British Commonwealth. Uh, for Gomoswana, the Commonwealth was Britain's effort at establishing a neo-colonial reign uh, that morphed uh, from political to economical control by protecting the interests of British trade. Other than the fact uh, that they were all colonized uh, by the British Empire, I don't know any material benefit. Uh, Otherwise, the members of the British Commonwealth, about uh, 56 countries all over the world, uh, would have been corroborating in writing the economic injustices. Uh, Victor uh, Gomoswana, commentator and columnist and author, made these statements. As such, uh, Gomoswana uh, says that the death of the former monarch should not be a cause for universal grief, but rather an opportunity to undo the damage uh, the British Empire has done through its rebranding of colonization, particularly because she reigned through its conceptualization and reification. She didn't do anything uh, benevolent. I'm sorry if she had done anything benevolent, it would have been when South Africa would have been in a much different country socioeconomically, and it is not. 
You can go to Ghana, Kenya, and Nigeria. You'll find the same trace of economic injustice that's thanks uh, to the United Kingdom. And Victor uh, is a commentator, a columnist, and an author. In other news, in the Republic of South Africa, African National Congress President Cyril Ramaphosa has received another nod for a second term uh, with Mpumalanga throwing its weight behind him and putting forward Ronald Lamola as his choice for the African National Congress Deputy President. Mpumalanga follows Tempopo, a provincial executive committee, uh, which resolved to back Ramaphosa for a second term during the week. The African National Congress is heading towards this national elective conference with nominations having been pushed back by the party's National Executive Committee. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal, and you can read these articles in their entirety over the Pan-African Newswire. Local officials uh, in uh, the West African state of Mali uh, were killed this week in Talakaye, a town located in northeastern Mali. The location, which sits at crossroads of influence for rival terrorist groups, was allegedly attacked uh, by the EIGS fighters uh, who have ties with the Islamic State organization. The exact death toll remains unknown. Indeed, only partial reports from different local sources have shed light on the humanitarian crisis and tragedy occurring in the Sahelian town cut off from the communication networks. A local official uh, said that 45 civilians had been killed while an MSA fighter standing for Tuareg-dominated movement for salvation of Azawad put the civilian death toll at 30. Uh, Both spoke to AFP on conditions of anonymity and added that houses and the market had been torched. An international humanitarian worker in the region said several dozen civilians had been killed. And uh, finally... Uh, Benin is currently in discussions with Rwanda to provide logistical support and expertise in its fight against jihadism in the north. A spokesman for the Beninese presidency told the international press on yesterday. Benin's army is deployed uh, in the northern region to contain jihadist groups in neighboring Niger and Burkina Faso, which carry out incursions and attack security forces there. It is currently seeking to strengthen the security apparatus. This clarification follows the publication of an article by African Intelligence, a news media specializing in the African continent, which reported that, quote, secret negotiations between Kigali and Kantanu were underway for the deployment of several hundred Rwandan soldiers and experts in northern Benin. The number of Rwandan elements that should be deployed initially is estimated at 350 a figure that could then double, unquote, according to this media outlet, which states that the negotiations have have just entered their final phase. The chief of staff of the Beninese Armed Forces, uh, General Fatouk Bagwedi, visited uh, Rwanda last July for bilateral talks and at, at deepening existing relations between the two military forces, according to a statement from the Rwandan military of defense. And uh, with that, uh, we want to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire 
is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. Panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, September the 10th, uh, 2022, uh, just go to our website at uh, the Blog Talk Radio, uh, which is at the Pan-African uh, Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Not only can you have access to today's program, but uh, well over 1,100 other uh, archived editions uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the sound of the Black Panther Party, uh, the voice of the Black Panther Party through Elaine Brown, a tune entitled The Meeting uh, from 1969, the album entitled Seize the Time, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, and right now we're going to go into a historic uh, address uh, from novelist, uh, essayist, playwright, and public intellectual uh, James Baldwin. Uh, this is entitled The Fire Next Time. Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives, and welcome to From the Vault, our weekly series that brings our history out of the vault and onto the radio. Today we continue our celebration of Black History Month with another treasure from the archives collection that has been recently restored for this broadcast thanks to a grant from the American Archive, funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and from Pacifica listeners. We're going to dedicate this program to an entire speech by author and essayist James Baldwin. I prefer to believe that since a society is created by men, it can be remade by men. The price for this transformation is high. White people will have to ask themselves precisely why they found it necessary to invent a nigger. We have featured the African-American writer James Baldwin before on From the Vault, and today we present another extraordinary instance of Mr. Baldwin on Pacifica Radio, as the African-American sought identity and definition in a world changing before them. The time is April or May of 1963. His book, The Fire Next Time, had just been released, and he is on the road speaking to churches, high schools, Masonic temples, universities, and at Pacifica Radio, both in Berkeley, California, New York, and Los Angeles. In April and May of 1963, Birmingham, Alabama, was where the fire was being fueled by white supremacy, where confrontations between African Americans and the police took a violent turn when fire hoses and dogs were released on the people demanding equality. This was just months before the 1963 March on Washington, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech. This program contains Baldwin referring to the African-American as Negro and uses the N-word once. We present this program unedited and unvarnished as an example of an era not so far in the distant past, but so close that many of you remember when these terms were not as inflammatory as they are today. Here, Baldwin addresses the congregation of the Second Baptist Church in Los Angeles with a talk he entitles, The Free and the Brave. Well, you better let my, let my people go. And I want you to somehow make a certain leap with me. I have one more quotation. I want to give you. And this comes from Nietzsche. It comes from Thus Spake Zarathustra, I think. But it's been in my mind all week long. At some point, 
The man says, I stand before my highest mountain and before my longest journey and therefore must I descend deeper than I have ever before descended. Now, there's several thousand things that one has got to say in the context that we're speaking, out of which we're speaking. And I suppose the first thing that I have to suggest is that one consider the fact that in the life of a man, the life of a woman, in anybody's life, there are several elements always at work. But the crucial element I want one to, one to consider here is that element of a life which we consider to be an identity. The way in which one puts oneself together, the way one imagines oneself to be, the reality, for example, the invented reality, standing before you now, arbitrarily called Jimmy Baldwin, who contains a great many other things. We have agreed. We have succeeded in striking a certain kind of bargain with the world. This is his name, and this is what he does, and this is who he is. Okay, but that's not it. Beneath that, forever, for everybody, is something else. It's a stranger. The stranger with whom one is forced to deal day in and day out. Forced, in fact, to discover. Forced, in fact, to create as distinct from invent. Life demands of everyone a certain kind of humility. The humility to be able to make the descent that Nietzsche was talking about. There, is, there are two ways, I think. I think there are two ways only to achieve a life or a nation. Let us consider, I'll be personal because I think it may be the easiest way for me to say it and the whole business of communication or communion really is to find some common term to make something mean to you some roughly what it means to me. In my life, as I am sure in your life, when one is young, one supposes that there is some way to avoid disaster. If I can spell that out, I mean that when one is young, when I was a little boy, for example, I used to tell my mother, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a fireman. I'm going to do, 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 be this. And Mama would look at me and she would say, it's more than a notion. It took me a long time, a very long time, to begin to realize that she was right and begin to realize what she meant. I, like all of us, thought I knew what I wanted and thought I knew who I was 
and thought that I could do it, and we all do this. Whatever it was I wanted, wherever I wanted to go, I thought that I could do it <coughs> without paying my dues. Because of all the things that one cannot imagine, especially when one's young, is how to pay your dues. You're, you don't even know there are dues to be paid. And later on, one begins to discover, and with great pain, and very much against one's will, that if you want something, whatever it is you want, and whatever it is you want at bottom must be to become yourself. There is nothing else to want. Whatever that is, however, whatever that journey is, one's got to accept the fact that disaster is a condition under which you will make it. The journey, I mean, not make it in the American sense. And you will learn a certain humility because the terms that you have invented, which you think describe and define you, inevitably collide with the facts of life. And when this collision occurs, and make no mistake, this is an absolutely inevitable collision. When this collision occurs, like two trains in a tunnel, one's got the choice, and it's a very narrow choice, of holding on to your definition of yourself, or saying, as the old folks used to say, and as everybody who wants to live has to say, yes, Lord which means to say yes to life. Until you can do that, you have not become a man or a woman. Now in this country, part of the dilemma, which could become a tragedy, of being what is known somewhat arbitrarily as an American, the collective effort until this moment and the collective delusion until this moment has been precisely my delusion when I was a little boy that you could get what you wanted and become what you said you were going to be painlessly. Furthermore, if one examines for a second or if one tries to define the proper noun, American. One will discover, first of all, 
that to be an American means a catalog of virtues. We have something called I Am an American Day, which I gather is meant to reassure everybody. <laughs> And to be an American in these terms apparently means, check me out, you think about it. <laughs> apparently means that though Greeks, Armenians, Turks, Frenchmen, Englishmen, Scotch, Scotsmen, Italians may be corrupt, sexual, unpredictable, lazy, evil, a little lower than the angels. <laughs> we are not. <laughs> Quite overlooking the fact that the country was settled by Englishmen, Scots, Germans, Turks, and Armenians, a little later to be sure. Every nation under heaven is here. And not, after all, for a very long time. I think that it might be useful, in order to survive our present crisis, to do what any individual does, is forced to do, to survive his crisis, which is to look back on his beginnings. The beginnings of this country, it seems to be, it's a banality to say it, but alas, it has to be said. The beginnings of this, of this country have nothing whatever to do with the myth we have created about it. The country did not come about because a handful of people in Europe, various parts of Europe, said, I want to be free, and probably built a boat or a raft <laughs> and crossed the Atlantic Ocean. Not at all. Not at all. In passing, let me remark that the word liberty the word freedom are terribly misused words. Liberty is a fact which is also used as a slogan and freedom may be the very last thing that people want. The very last thing. Anyway, the people who settled the country the people who came here, came here for one reason, no matter how disguised. They came here because they thought it would be better here than where they were. That's why they came. And that's the only reason that they came. Anybody who was making it in England
did not get on the Mayflower. <laughs> this is important. It is important that one begin to recognize this because part of the dilemma of this country is that it has, it has managed to believe the myth it has created about its own past. Which is another way of saying that it is entirely not denied its past. And we all know, if we think about it, what happens to a person who is born, let us say, where I was born, in Harlem, and goes to the world pretending he was born in Sutton Place. How odd this may sound. Also happens to a nation, a nation being when it finally comes into existence, the achievement of the people who make it up. And the quality of the nation being absolutely at the mercy, defined, dictated by the nature and the quality of the people who make it up. In this extraordinary endeavor to create the country called America, a great many crimes were committed. Now I want to make it absolutely clear, or as clear as I can make it, that I understand perfectly well that crime is universal and common. And I trust that no one will assume that I am indicting or accusing. I'm not any longer interested in the crime. People treat each other very badly and always have and very probably always will. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about denying what one does, which is a much more sinister matter. We did several things in order to conquer the country. There was at the point we reached these shores. A group of people who had never heard of machines, or as far as I know, of money. I think we would call them now a backward nation. And we promptly eliminated them. We killed them. I'm talking about the Indians, in case you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Well, people have done this for centuries, but I hazard, I'll bet you as you say in Harlem, I'm a fat man, that not many American children being taught American history have any real sense of what that collision was like 
or what we really did, how we really achieved the extermination of the Indian, what that meant. And it is interesting to consider that very few social critics, none to my knowledge, but I say very few, have begun even to analyze the hidden reasons that the cowboy and Indian legend is still one of the most popular legends in American life, so popular that it still, in 1963, dominates the television screen. And I suppose, to finish off that particular item or to close it for the moment, that all those cowboy and Indian stories <coughs> are designed to reassure us that no crime was committed. <laughs> We've made a legend out of a massacre. In which connection, if I may for a moment, digress. There used to be an old joke running around among Negroes. If you remember the Lone Ranger, I think he had a, I think he had a sidekick called Tonto, an Indian. There's always a good Indian. He rode around. He rode, he rode around the Lone Ranger, and according to my version of the story, the version I heard, um, Tonto and the Lone Ranger ran into this ambush of nothing but Indians. <laughs> and the Lone Ranger said, what are we going to do, Tonto? And Tonto said, what do you mean, we? <laughs> now, slavery, like murder, is one of the oldest human institutions. So we cannot quarrel about the fact of slavery. That is to say we could, but it's, that's another story. But we enslaved him because in order to conquer the country, we had to have cheap labor. And the man who is now known as the American Negro, who is one of the oldest of American citizens and the only one who never wanted to come here, <laughs> did the dirty work. Hold the cotton. You hold cotton? No. Chopped cotton, whatever you do with cotton. Pick cotton. <laughs> Line track. Helped. In fact, I think it is not too strong a statement to say. But let me put it this way. Without his presence, without that strong back, 
The American economy, the American nation, would have had a vast amount of trouble creating its capital. If, then, if one had not had the cat toting the bars and the bales, as he put it, it would be a very different country, and it would certainly be much poorer. And that's all right. But the people I'm speaking of who settled the country had a fatal flaw. They could see, they could recognize a man when they saw one. They knew he wasn't. I mean, you can tell. They knew he wasn't anything else but a man. But since they were Christian, and since they had already decided that they came here to establish a free country, and some of them really meant it, by the way, the only way to justify the role this chattel was playing in one's life was to say that he was not a man. Because if he wasn't a man, then no crime had been committed. That is the basis. That lie is the basis of our present trouble, because that is an extremely complex lie. If on the one hand, one man cannot avoid recognizing another man, it is also true then, obviously, that the man, the black man, who was in captivity, and treated like an animal, and told that he was one, knew that he was a man, and knew that something was wrong. When we got here, those of us who survived the Middle Passage, let me tell you a very small anecdote. I was in Dakar about a year ago in Senegal, And just off Dakar, there is a very small island called Gore, which was once the property of the Portuguese. And it's simply a rock with a fortress. It is the nearest, from Africa, the nearest point to America. On this island, my sister and I went to this island they had something called the slave house and we went there to visit it. And the house is not terribly large. Looks like houses you see in New Orleans. <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> it's about two stories. 
courtyard, staircase on each side, stone staircase. And the bottom section, which is the first story, I assume that the captains and the slavers were upstairs. Downstairs were the slave quarters, which were, you walked through a kind of archway on either side of you, very dark, very low, and this is made of stone, were a series of cells on either side, stone floor, still rusted iron in the walls. It seemed to me, this may be my imagination, but it seemed to me that I could still smell it, what it must have smelled like with all those human beings chained together in such a place. And remember, they could not speak to each other because they didn't come from the same tribe. On either side, as I say, they have the, in this corridor, there are the cells. But straight ahead of you, you come into this, this archway and straight ahead of you is a very much smaller doorway made of stone which opens on the sea. You go to the edge of the door and you look down and at your feet are some black stones in the form of the Atlantic Ocean bubbling up against you. And the day that I was there, that we were there, I tried, but it's impossible. Because the ocean is just the horizon. I tried to imagine what it must have felt like to find yourself chained and speechless no serious sense of that word. On your way, where? You are listening to The Free and the Brave, a speech by James Baldwin on From the Vault. For more information or to get a copy of this program or other programs in this series, visit us online at fromthevaultradio.org or call us toll-free at 1-800-735-0230. You can research our collection at pacificaradioarchives.org. And now back to our program. In this next segment, we listen to author James Baldwin field questions from the Congregation of the Second Baptist Church in Los Angeles, April 1963. It was the black man's necessity once he got here to accept the cross, to somehow manage to outwit his Christian master because what he faced when he got here was really the Bible and the gun. And that's all right, too. What is terrible in it is the fact that American white men are not prepared, first of all, to believe, for example, my version of this story, to believe that it happened. In order to avoid 
believing that, they have set up in themselves a fantastic system of evasions, denials, and justifications, which destroyed, or is about to destroy, their grasp of reality, which is another way of saying their moral sense. What I'm trying to say is that the crime is not the most important thing here. What makes our situation serious is that we have spent so many generations pretending that it did not happen. If you doubt me, ask yourself on what assumption rests, on what assumptions rest those extraordinary questions that white men ask. No matter how politely, on what assumption rests the question, would you let your sister marry? <laughs> it's based on some preoccupation in somebody's mind. God knows, you know, I have never given any evidence of having a particular problem. I'm not interested in marrying your sister, my God. <laughs> I mean that. On what assumption, on what assumption, again, rests the extraordinary question, what does a Negro want? This again comes out of some extraordinary preoccupation in the mind. Something entirely, if I may say so, divorced from reality. It's like saying, what to see you eat or, I don't know, it's as unreal as unreal can be. When a baby cries, you don't ask the baby what it wants. You find out, you know, you change the baby's diaper. That's what you do, you know. You don't run to your next door neighbor and say, what does my baby want? <laughs> now let's go back for a minute to where I started. Let's go back to Nietzsche. I stand before my highest mountain and before my longest journey. And therefore, must I descend deeper than I've ever before descended. And we spoke a little earlier about the necessity when the collision between your terms and life occurs of saying yes to life. That's the descent. The difference between a boy and a man is that a boy imagines 
there is some way to get through life safely. And a man knows he's got to pay his dues. In this country, the entire nation has always assumed that I would pay their dues for them. What it means to be a Negro in this country is that you represent, you are the receptacle of, you are the vehicle of all the pain, disaster, and sorrow which white Americans think they can escape. This is what is meant, really what is meant, by keeping the Negro in its place. It is why white people, until today, are still astounded and offended if by some miscalculation they are forced to suspect that you are not happy in your place. <laughs> this is absolutely true. And I'm, not, I'm not, not talking about the Deep South. People finally say to you, but you're so bitter. <laughs> They've been in this country for a dangerously long time. Two levels of experience. One, to put it cruelly, but I think quite truthfully, can be summed up in the image of Doris Day and Gary Cooper. I think you know, I think you know what they do. <laughs> and the other, subterranean, indispensable, but denied, which can be summed up, let us say, in the tone of Ray Charles. And there's never been in this country any real confrontation between these two realities. Let me force you, or try to force you, to observe a paradox. Though all white Americans, in essence, essentially came from Europe, It is only American Negroes whom Europe understands. Let me spell it out. When American Negroes in Europe, he and the people whom he finds himself among are able to establish dialogue which white Americans have great difficulty establishing if they ever do. And the reason is very simple. The European and the black American know what it is to suffer. And Americans don't. Now the bill for this endeavor to get from the cradle to the grave, looking like Eisenhower, 
has now come in. White people are astounded by Birmingham. Black people aren't. White people are endlessly demanding to be reassured that Birmingham is really on Mars. <laughs> they don't want to believe, still less to act on the belief. So what is happening in Birmingham? Now I mean this, and I am not exaggerating. There are several thousand ways to kill a man. There are several, several thousand ways to be violent. They don't want to realize that there is not one step, one inch, Morally or actually, there is no distance between Birmingham and Los Angeles. Now it is entirely possible that we may all go under But until that happens, I prefer to believe that since a society is created by men, it can be remade by men. The price for this transformation is high. White people will have to ask themselves precisely why they found it necessary to invent a nigger. Because they invented him for reasons out of necessities of their own. And every white citizen of this country will have to accept the fact that he is not innocent because those dogs and those hoses, those crimes are being committed in your name. Black people do something very hard too, but they've done it, some of it already, which is to allow the white citizen his first awkward steps toward maturity. But we have functioned in this country precisely that way for a very long time. We were the first psychiatrists in this country. <laughs> if we can hang on just a little bit longer, all of us, 
We may make it. We've got to try. But I think that those are the conditions. Thank you. First, I must report that there were over a hundred questions asked, and we selected those that we thought uh, were more pertinent, and also that those that uh, we, we uh, put aside those who were duplicates. The first one, Mr. Baldwin, reads: Could you please comment on the Muslim situation and the significance of their movement? The question about the Muslim movement posed to James Baldwin in this 1963 visit to the Second Baptist Church in Los Angeles is interesting in that in 1961, just a few years prior to that, James Baldwin debated Malcolm X on a program called Muslims versus the Sit-ins and is preserved in the Pacifica Radio Archives. The significance of the Muslim movement, it would seem to me, first of all, well, it's, this, is a, this is a complicated question and a complicated answer. A. The Muslim movement came about, exists, and begins to flourish because the American Republic has never honored any of its promises, repeat, any of its promises, to its black citizens. That is its first significance to me, in my mind. It has another significance. It is, at the moment, probably the only way that a black boy or a black girl let me go back it is probably if not the only way one of the only ways that a black boy or a black girl can be invested with a pride in the fact of being black and this is extremely important The entire country, having lied, in fact, the entire white civilization, having lied about black people so long, until this very, until this very moment, this was absolutely inevitable. Now, I have no objection to those, to that. See. This begins my objection. I am perfectly aware, or imperfectly aware, but I was born in a ghetto, raised there, and in fact I never left it. Really, no Negro ever does, if he stays in this country. I am perfectly aware, I think, of the demoralization and the despair and the destruction which is being bred in those ghettos 
every single hour of every single day. And I know how hard it is for any black person in this country to arrive at any sense of his own value. And yet, there are two ways to arrive at this sense. And this is perhaps rather subtle. I don't think it is, but perhaps it is. Maybe I think one of them is false and one of them is true. What white people have done for all these generations is lie about themselves. And they put on the color of their skin a totally false value. They have said, in effect, for 2,000 years, they are better than everyone else in the world because they are white. And look at them. Look at the result, the spiritual, the actual, the political result. is nothing more or less than a moral and a spiritual bankruptcy. Because it is not true that the color of the skin has any importance at all in a human life. And I know that it seems to, and I know that people have perished because of the color of their skin. But it is not because of the color of their skin, really. It is because of the value placed on it. It is because of what it means in the eyes of someone else or in their own eyes. I want, from the very bottom of my heart, that black people in this country arrive at a real sense of who they are. And I, I also understand that life being what it is and power being what it is, that it is entirely possible that the world will have to align itself for the next 2,000 years on the basis of color with the roles reversed. Speaking only for myself, I would not like to see this happen. Speaking for myself, my objective to the Muslim movement is twofold. I do not see that they have an articulate program by which I mean such things as a rent strike in harm. I mean a real revolution, and I do not want my nephew or my brother or my son to begin to believe that he is better than white people because he is black. I don't think that one needs to invent, I do not think the Negro people in this country have any need to invent a reason to be proud. They have achieved already, I know this is a hard thing, but this is true. They have achieved and endured and survived and triumphed over and turned to their advantage already. One of the cruelest inflictions in the history of mankind. I think that we have every right to be proud, to be proud that our mothers and our fathers that our mothers and our fathers, are, in fact, our forebears, carried washing on their heads, and even to be proud, I hope you understand what I mean, that they knew how to say yes sir and no ma'am, and get what they wanted anyway, that they outwitted this civilization to the extent, they outwitted this civilization to the extent that they took that cross, they took that cross, and made it something it had never been before. 
in this country and they took that anguish and turned it into music and they are the only people in this country on the basis of the evidence who have been able to produce children to walk through mobs to get to school they are the only people in this country so far as a body who seem to have any sense of what America is about and the American Revolution, if I may say so depends entirely at the moment on their energy now this is a tremendous heritage and I would not like to throw it away for an invented one Is there a relationship between the African independence movement and the present-day struggles of the Negro people in the United States today? That's a complex question, too. And it's mainly a question which the American government is determined not to face. We are living whether or not J. Edgar Hoover likes it <laughs> in an age of revolution there's nothing any of us can do about that except say no or say yes the 20 million Negroes in this country are not only involved and profoundly involved with the events the revolution in Africa but with the revolution all over the world we have made for the reasons I tried to outline when I was talking to you earlier the profound mistake of thinking that when we speak only we are listening we have made the extraordinary mistake of assuming that what we think Cuba is is what Cuba is I don't know, and this is, this is really what Bobby Kennedy has in mind when he always, when he asks for a cooling off period so he won't be embarrassed for the Russians. <laughs> I don't know, speaking honestly, for example, and this is a very important example, but it's only an example. There are many, 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 many others that we can't stay here all night. I don't know, so far, a single Negro who knows for what reason he would go to Cuba to free the Cubans. <laughs> the next two questions I will ask Mr. Baldwin to ask uh, together. The first one, what specific action can the Caucasian American take to achieve full human dignity? The next one, what specific political action can the Negro take to achieve full human dignity? I don't want to be, I don't want to sound cruel. I'm not trying to be malicious and I'm not trying to be clever. But it seems to me the first question especially 
What specific action can the Caucasian American take to achieve full human dignity? It occurs to me as being somewhat pathetic. I mean that. If I may be allowed to be rude for a moment, not very rude, but I'm trying to make a point. It reminds me of those people who run to doctors or other friends or I don't know, you know. Anyway, the question comes up, what should I tell my child about sex? <laughs> and I always think, don't you know yet? I don't think, if I may be harsh, that any white American has the right to such innocence. If you don't know what action you should take to achieve full human dignity, God knows I can't tell you. And the second question, what specific action, etc., can the American Negro take to achieve full human dignity, is allied to the first. Because obviously, if you don't know what you should do to become a human being, you can't imagine what I should do to become a human being. <laughs> and it is part of our dilemma that such questions can be asked. The question has to be asked of someone else, not of me, of you. My son is seven and a half years old, a Negro. He thinks white people are greater than we are. What do I say? <laughs> That's a hard question. And again, I don't want to sound harsh. But it would seem to me that the question betrays a certain insecurity on the part of the woman or the man who asked it. If your child of seven and a half thinks white people are greater than we are, it can't yet be because of white people, so it must be because of you. So the only way to answer your kid's question is for you, I suspect, to cease trying to be white. And that does it for this week's From the Vault. We'd like to thank Lorenz Graham for recording the James Baldwin speech back in 1963 for Pacifica Radio. If you would like to join our campus campaign sponsoring school libraries across the country, visit us online at pacificaradioarchives.org or call us toll-free in the archives 1-800-735-0230. This program is written and produced by Mark Torres and Brian DeShazer. The series is executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and your host, Brian DeShazer. 
From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, the American Archive funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, past grants from the Grammy Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and partnerships with UC Berkeley Moffett Library and from Pacifica Station listeners. Our theme music is by Kevin Drum Holiday. Thanks for listening and keeping our history alive. Welcome back. And that was uh, classic uh, uh, rare archival audio file uh, featuring uh, James Baldwin, novelist, essayist, playwright, uh, public intellectual. And uh, right now we'll take a musical interlude. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that was um, the legendary Elmore James uh, talking about the Stranger Blues, and uh, this weekend represents the 51st anniversary of the Attica Prison Rebellion of September 1971. Uh, began on September the 9th and was brutally ended uh, by the state police in Attica Prison uh, at the aegis of uh, then uh, New York State Governor Nelson Rockefeller. Let's go back uh, to 1971. Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, Director of the Pacifica Radio Archives, and welcome to another edition of From the Vault, the Archives weekly program that takes our history out of the vault and onto the radio. This week we listen to the historic Pacifica radio coverage of the bloodiest prison confrontation in American history. September 9, 1971 marked the beginning of the Attica Prison Rebellion. Nearly 1,500 prisoners revolted and held 40 guards hostage while the world awaited the reason for this uprising. Prisoner L.D. Barkley would break the silence on WBAI radio in New York City. The entire incident that has erupted here at Attica is not a result of the dastardly bushwhacking of the two prisoners September 8th of 1971, but of the unmitigated oppression wrought by the racist administrative network of this prison throughout the year. We are men. We are not beasts and we do not intend to be beaten or driven as such. What has happened here is but the sound before the fury of those who are oppressed. We call upon all the conscientious citizens of America to assist us in putting an end to this situation that threatens the lives of not only us, but of each and every one of you as well. The prisoners had authored a manifesto issuing demands for improvements on inhumane living conditions as well as establishing educational and career training opportunities. Four days of negotiations ended, and New York State Police and National Guard troops assaulted the rebel prison block. When the smoke cleared, the death toll was 33 prisoners and 10 of the prison guards held hostage. Pacifica's coverage of these five chilling days brought into focus a world behind bars that the American public created. The origins of the tragedy of Attica can be traced to conditions inside the prison that very few people were aware of, unless they spent time behind Attica's gates or listened to Pacifica's broadcast. Following the September 13th siege of the prison, all alleged rebel leaders were locked down in 24-hour isolation cells. In February of 1972, Attica began allowing the press to speak to the prisoners. Prisoner Donald Noble, who was responsible for saving the life of hostage Michael Smith when the troops stormed the prison, spoke with WBAI producer Bruce Soloway about the living conditions inside the prison before the rebellion started. The food is all bad. Like one time a guy called the officer over, told the officer there was a worm in the soup, you know. The officer said, well, don't say nothing because you're lucky, at least you got some meat. You know, and all this type of thing, you know. But oh, these are the conditions that you live here, you know. Uh, how about... Uh, 
toilet gotta go as well. You get a roll of toilet paper once a month. You don't you don't get no toothpaste or toothbrush or anything like that. Now since this disturbance they started coming around letting you know that if you want some toothpaste uh toothbrush that to turn in the old toothbrush and turn the old tube toothpaste and you will get them. This the all they say you start getting after the disturbance. But up the line you wasn't getting this and you still get the toilet paper like uh, once a month. But uh, these are the conditions that you live here. Same thing like in the middle shop where I was working at. Uh, the, the Mr. Mills, the head director of industry from Albany, he came here. And uh, everybody ran up to him with all kinds of plants, you know, dealing with the shop. They had gas, they had uh, paint masses up there, what wasn't good. Because uh, when you use the paint gun, the fumes of it get in your system. And the people were showing them that the masses was no good and all this here. And they asked the doctor for some milk so they could kill these uh, fumes. And this was, the doctor refused this here, so he said that, uh, he looked at the masks and seen that they was no good, so he said that he's going to speak to Oswell and try to get some uh, different masses, but uh, he, he's not for it. Donald Noble was also one of the creators and authors of the Attica Manifesto. This document was originally written to Attica warden Vincent Mancusi to encourage prison reform within Attica. When Vincent Mancusi gave no indication that these reforms would ever take place under his term, they sent the list of 28 demands to New York State Corrections Commissioner Russell Oswald. Donald Noble describes this process. Yes, well, I'm one of the, I'm one of the, uh, the men whose name is on a manifesto that was submitted to Oswald. Tell me something about it. Well, we submitted uh, to, uh, a manifesto, uh, 28 demands to Oswald in uh, July, and we also submitted one to Rockefeller, we also submit one to Shirley Chisholm. We also submit one to Arthur O'Heave and different uh, legislative people and lawyers and so forth. You know, we got a beautiful reply back from Oswald on, on uh, I think it was on August, sometime in August. You know, he acknowledged our letter and so forth. You know, and he was uh, enthused about the, the way that the manifesto was thrown up because this was more or less coinciding with his ideas, you know. And he stated that, uh, that, uh, uh, he, he's for all these changes that we talked about because he sees that they are needed, you know, but to give him time. And everybody, you know, they went along with him because a lot of us had dealing with Oswald for years, you know, being around, coming back and forth when he's sitting on the pro board. So then different things, like the, the was things that all he had to do was more or less uh, get in touch with the warden here that would have been, went into effect, you know. You know, because it seemed like the way we see it, a lot of us, that uh, when, if he tells Mancusi, like, to, to do this here, Mancusi would say, hell with it, you know, I'm going to do my thing, you know, which wasn't uh, nothing. Perhaps broadcast only on Pacifica Radio in its entirety, prisoner L.D. Barkley reads the manifesto in Attica's central yard. Here it is, unmediated. To the people of the United States of America, first of all, we want it to be known that in the past we have had some very, very treacherous experiences with the Department of Correction in New York State. They have promised us many things, and they have given us nothing except more of what we already got. Brutalization, murder inside this penitentiary. We do not intend to accept or allow ourselves to accept this situation again. Therefore, we have composed this declaration to the people of America to let them know exactly how we feel and what it is that they must do and what we want primarily and not what we what someone else wants for us. We're talking about what we want. The entire, and then and again, it seems to be a little misunderstanding about why this incident developed here at Attica. And this declaration here will explain the reason. The entire incident that has erupted here at Attica 
is not a result of the dastardly bushwhacking of the two prisoners September 8th of 1971, but of the unmitigated oppression wrought by the racist administrative network of this prison throughout the year. We are men. We are not beasts and we do not intend to be beaten or driven as such. The entire prison populace, that means each and every one of us here, have set forth to change forever the ruthless brutalization and disregard for the lives of the prisoners here and throughout the United States. What has happened here is but the sound before the fury of those who are oppressed. We will not compromise on any terms except those terms that are agreeable to us. We call upon all the conscientious citizens of America to assist us in putting an end to this situation that threatens the lives of not only us, but of each and every one of you as well. We have set forth demands that will bring us closer to the reality of the demise of these prison institutions that serve no useful purpose to the people of America, but to those who would enslave and exploit the people of America. Our demands are such. We want complete amnesty, meaning freedom from all and any physical, mental, and legal reprisals. We, we want now speedy and safe transportation out of confinement to a non-imperialistic country. We demand that, federal, that the federal government intervene so that we will be under direct federal jurisdiction. We want the governor and the judiciary, namely Constance B. Motley, to guarantee that there will be no reprisals. And we want all facets of the media to articulate this. We urgently demand immediate negotiations through William M. Kunstler, attorney at law, 588 9th Avenue, New York, New York, Assemblyman Arthur O'Eve of Buffalo, the Prison Solidarity Committee of New York, Minister Farrakhan from the Muslims. We want Huey P. Newton from the Black Panther Party, and we want the chairman of the Young Lord Party. We want Clarence B. Jones of the Amsterdam News. We want Tom Wicker of the New York Times. We want Richard Roth from the Curry Express. We want the Fortune Society. Dave Anderson of the Urban League of Rochester. Blonde Eva Barnes. We want Jim Ingram of the Democratic Lit Chronicle of Detroit, Michigan. We guarantee the safe passage of all people to and from this institution. We invite all the people to come here and witness this degradation so that they can better know how to bring this degradation to an end. This is what we want. We right have right Also, we want Joe Walker from Mohammed Speech Newspapers. And, and we want this to be understood. All these people that we've asked for, we love them, and I believe they care something about us. And we don't want him, them here next year. We want them here now. One of the people the prisoners asked to come and witness the negotiations was New York State Assembly member Arthur Eve, representing the 143rd District of Buffalo. Eve explains his role in the Attica Rebellion. Well, I got there on Thursday uh, when I heard over the wire services that uh, the revolt had taken place. Uh, I immediately asked the commissioner to allow me to go in because no one had been in to talk with the inmates uh, since the revolt had started. This was about 2 or 3 o'clock. 
uh, Professor Herman Schwartz from the UB Law School, who'd been working on prison legal matters, was there and you know said that he would go in also. So we went in as the first set of outsiders who went into D yard. There, the inmates gave me a list of their five set of demands, first five set points, in which one of them were that they wanted certain people to come to Attica to be observers. Uh, and uh, my name was one of them. Uh, the commissioner, no one ever called me, and I understand that they had given this to the state. About how long before you came? Uh, in fact, nobody called me. I imagine they, as soon as the revolt was taken over and they were able to sit down and type out this first set of those demands that it was given to the state within a couple of hours or so. And I guess I got there maybe uh, three or four hours. When they gave me that list, then uh, I came out and talked with the commissioner about getting these people here because yeah. the inmates said they would not negotiate until those people were there. The commissioner in the state only attempted to get a few, and they, uh, Clarence Jones of the Amsterdam News was one of those that the governor flew in on a private plane along with uh, several other people. But I found that they were not attempting to get the other people, so I called my office, and they in turn called the Kunstler, uh, the Black Panthers, uh, the Young Lords, uh, Tom Wick of the New York Times, uh, even a guy from a local racist white newspaper in Buffalo that they, one of the, some of the inmates wanted a guy named Charles Roth who had evidently written a fairly fair pro, you know, story about prisons. Uh, they wanted Minister Farrakhan, the black Muslims. Uh, uh, they wanted Prison Solidarity Committee. Uh, and it was, in fact, they wanted someone from the Urban League of Rochester, a guy named Dave Anderson, and a woman from a poverty program there in Niagara Falls, New York. And I think what it showed was that, you know, the various diverse political philosophies of all of the inmates, but uh, everyone honored everyone else's request, and they were then made a composite list of people, representative of all the people in there, to come. Assemblymember Arthur Eve describes how the prisoners would communicate with the state of New York. And because the inmates had told us all along that we could not negotiate for them, we could not make any decisions for them, the observer groups. The best thing we could do was take a message out, since the state would not come in and negotiate with them, get a response, and just bring that back, okay? We could not make any decisions. Um, and, you know, we made that very clear every time we went out, that the best we could do was take a message back to the state and get the state to respond, and we would bring that back. But all decisions would be made by them, because it was their lives that decisions were being made on. And that's why I don't like people to call us negotiators as such. You know, we were an observer group that the men had invited that whatever was finally negotiated on and agreed to by the state that we would have been there to ensure that these things would have been implemented, you see, because they'd been lied to at other, you know, at, at the Auburn situation because I was involved after the Auburn uh, disorders and uh, where the men had been promised certain things and instead of getting them, all they had was reprisals. They were put in cells for 90 to 120 days at Auburn. So the men knew that the credibility of the state and the superintendent was very, very bad. But when Saturday came, Bobby Seals came, and uh, uh, all of us went in with Bobby along with the press. Each time we went, I want to repeat, the press went in. The press had opportunity to document everything that was said, you know, uh, the interviews with the hostages, everything. 
but Bobby went in, and we all went in with Bobby, and we were told, uh, you know, to come out when you know Bobby left. Uh, Bobby went in, talked with a few of the inmates, sort of the leadership, and got a picture of what was going on. And he said that he had to leave and come back, and uh, later the next morning, Sunday morning at seven, but he was going to talk to Brother Huey Newton and. Uh, uh, talk with the committee back in L.A., but, you know, he couldn't tell him what to do. He wasn't going to make any recommendation, you know. Co-founder of the Black Panther Party, Bobby Seale. Uh, really what happened is that I went to Oakland, California Sunday. Mm-hmm. I arrived in Oakland, California, West Coast time at 3 o'clock. West Coast time at 12 o'clock that same Sunday afternoon, I caught a plane back. Mm-hmm. This was the original intended plan in the first place. I uh, went back to confer with the Central Committee the Black Panther Party, we're not individualists in the party, and uh, it's just one of those things where we have to have some kind of democratic centralized functions. And uh, I reported to them the situation. Uh, I explained to the Census Committee that uh, some more legal and political support was going to be necessary, and that uh, the uh, brothers had explained to me that uh, they wanted me to hurry up and go to Oakland and come on back uh, with any kind of negotiative guidance mm-hmm. that they could s- decide on. These were the prisoners mm-hmm. who told me this, the 22 minutes that I was inside the prison Saturday night prior to going to Oakland Sunday. Um, I came back, well, wait a minute, let me back up a little bit. While I was there in Oakland, the Central Committee decided it was very necessary that right away I should get on the phone, try to contact William Kunstler inside the prison, and see if uh, William Kunst could get Oswald, the commissioner, on the phone. Mm-hmm. This was done. Uh, Oswald came on the phone, and uh, I had told uh, Oswald what the Central Committee said that I should tell Oswald. And what I told Oswald was basically that the prisoners had stated to me before I left that Saturday night while I was inside, mm-hmm. the prisoners had stated to me that they would not kill or release any of the guards, at least until I return to help out with more negotiative guidance that they could decide on. Mm-hmm. Now, this is what the prisoners told me. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I told Oswald that. He says, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm on my way back. I'll be there tomorrow morning. Again, Arthur Eve. I'd like to get to the Saturday night thing leading into Sunday morning because this is a critical point. Uh, First of all, the inmates allowed and insisted that Officer Quinn, the one who ultimately died that Saturday, they insisted that the state send in a stretcher so that they could get him out of there because they felt that he was had been seriously injured. The inmates insisted that a doctor be allowed to come in and to treat the hostages. The inmates gave the state a list of the hostages that they had because from just observing, evidently the state hadn't even ascertained who the hostages were that they had in. The inmates provided that list and asked for medical records of each of the hostages that they had. And there were a number of hostages from 7 to 11 that were allowed to leave if they had a history of heart you know, condition or asthmatic conditions or anything that might, in fact, staying inside might jeopardize their lives. So I want to make it very clear that the impression given that the inmates did not care about the hostages' lives and did, in fact, uh, not treat them, you know, humane while they were inside, that is not so. In fact, the hostages slept on single and double mattresses while most of the inmates slept on the ground. 
the hostages were covered during the day by sort of a makeshift tent that they had built uh, in order to protect them from the sun. And the doctor who volunteered, and I must commend this man, it was a white doctor, uh, a surgeon uh, who, who answered to the call for volunteer uh, out of that whole area. And he was allowed to go in freely, back and out, without any stopping. In fact, when he went in, the inmates would lead him over to the hostages first, and he would always check them out first, and then he would look at some of the other inmates because there were men in there who had asthmatic conditions, heart conditions, and other things. And he said to the press that uh, the the inmates were taking better care of the hostages than they were themselves, that the, in, the hostages ate more, that they drank more, and they had more of everything. And the inmates were doing this. The state was not making that determination. So I want to get that straight from the very beginning. From my people and comrades from Attica State Prison, they have informed us, we that are trying to serve our people, that an officer that has been mentioned by the press, which has been using relics and trying to destroy what really, really happened is that the officer died of a heart attack. This officer was sent to the hospital by the prison administration. Later on, two days later, this officer passed away in the hospital. Now, this administration run by Bancuzzi, and now who's in command, Oswald, and his supreme commander, Rockefeller, as trying to charge us with murder. This is not so. So are we are, myself, and our people in Attica, are trying to tell you that we did not murder this officer. Arthur Eve explains how the state was using the media to publicly demonize the prisoners. It's my understanding that there were only one sandwich per day for the That's inmates. right. When the sandwiches were sent in, approximately 1,300 sandwiches, this is what they told us. Now, again, I don't know. They said approximately the state was saying 13 sandwiches were going in. Uh, the inmates gave the hostages as much as they wanted to eat. If they, wanted, if they felt two sandwiches were you know, what they needed, they got two where the inmates at times had to divide, you know, and take a third of a sandwich or two-thirds or what. They rationed it out so that uh, they then divided among themselves equally what was left after the hostages ate. And I want to make this very clear. Uh, they, you know, took very good care of them. To see the stories after I got out, you know, that had been written, you know, just was, you know, unbelievable. I think it points up, you know, the inmates had a television set inside. They had a portable radio. Uh, and every time we went in, you know, they let the press come in. They insisted that, you know, all the major networks and everything else, and they had a pool out front where they would pick X number of guys to go in. And they knew the things that were being recorded. They knew the statements that were being made, you know, and the hostages were saying that they were being treated well and so forth, you know, and how they were being treated even better. And they should, you know, and they were shown the area. You know, the doctor told the news media how the hostages were being treated better and so forth. But then they saw on the TV tubes that this was not what was going out into the world. And they then, you know, knew that the system was again attempting to polarize and to make uh, the outside world look upon them as, you know, animals or beasts or people who were not sensitive to human life. 
So, you know, all the days that they were in there, they knew that things would go back to the studios, be edited, and only those things that people wanted to use to further polarize this country was the things that were going out. So I want you to know that they were very well aware of the distortions, the, you know, untruths, and the kinds of editing that the major networks of this country and the news media were doing. So on Saturday, uh, you know, in fact, when they said that Quinn was thrown out of a second-floor window, you know, and they said this Thursday, you know, when he was, you know, when he came out, they said it Friday, then he died Saturday, I believe, and, you know, the papers repeated it, thrown out of a second-floor window. The claim by the administration is that the uh, correction officer who died was thrown from a second-floor window. Will you answer that for the press, please? Yes. Uh, I wish I had some kind of way to show you the bars in front of the window so you can understand and see for yourself See for yourself, how can a man throw himself out a window while the bars are no larger than at least around six inches? Well, if you've ever been in Attica and been at a maximum security penal institution, you know that there's bars on the first first floor windows. You know, it's humanly impossible to throw a 200-pound man out of a second-floor window in a prison, you see. But again, you know, the state did not correct these kinds of vicious lies because it was all part of their further polarization, uh, all uh, helping, hopefully, they felt to give the public, you know, support for them to go in and to do ultimately what they did. Perhaps most powerful were the sounds of the public pleas of the corrections officers being held hostage within the walls of Attica. Whatever people they have on the roofs, outside, anybody with a weapon, anybody with anything of a militant manner, leave. Just get him off the rock. How about the request that Governor Rockefeller make an appearance here? I suggest he get his ass here now. We're not, I'd like to say this, I think I'm speaking for all of us, we're not scared of any of you people. We know it's not you hurting us, but the people outside, the governor, the people that elected the governor, and all the people in the United States, we're awaiting their decision. And we want to see them meet all your demands. Again, I say I, I really want, and we all want, the people on the roofs to get off. Mike, in making the statement you just made that it's not the people in here who are hurting you, but it's the people outside, have you been coached to make that statement? Any pressure, any promise, anything of any kind? But no. It's, can you say something convincing in that regard? Because it will sound so to many people. Yes, I think I think that the unity is one 
White Brothers, Black Brothers, Puerto Rican Brothers, all you people show that you've got yourselves together. The mere fact that we haven't been injured. You have a family... Uh, yes, I have a wife. I have a daughter born May 26, 1971. I wish I could be home with them. We all wish we could be home. By we, I don't mean 38 of us. I mean all of us. All... 1,538 of us. When it was evident the state of New York was losing interest in negotiating, Attorney William Kunstler made a prediction on the state's next move. Do you think that, uh, they will really sacrifice the guards before they will uh, agree to the demands of the prisoners? Yeah, I had hoped the guards would not be expendable, but I think from the reaction here that they are expendable. Did you say that the guards are expendable? If the, if the governor's remarks mean that he won't come and intervene, then I come to the conclusion the guards' lives are expendable. Do you think that uh, Commissioner Oswald has another alternative? Of course he has no alternative time, just to wait. And prisoners said they would take no action whatsoever if they had more time. And it seemed to me that time in all justice and humanity should have been given. Time can make you know, a lot of shades of difference in negotiation, and time can save lives, and I would think that no stone <laughs> should have been unturned in order to save those lives. They want to kill 39 guards and 1,500 prisoners, that's one thing. If they have any respect for human life, time is a lot easier to buy than life. In time, but isn't uh, the only way to get out of this really to grant the amnesty that they're asking? Well, but there are shades of amnesty. There are ways to negotiate it. There are lots of things about, that could be done. What about, what's the shade of amnesty that might be acceptable to the prisoners? The governor might uh, promise commutation, immediate commutation. He might promise a, an, a certain limit on punishment. He might promise executive clemency and executive pardon. I mean, there are a dozen different ways in which that cat could be skinned. The, a few moments ago, state police troopers moved into the unsecured areas of the institution to restore order under specific orders to only use force to meet force or to protect the lives, if possible, of the hostages. At the same time, a riot control gas was dispersed at 948 by helicopters in an effort to immobilize persons in the unsecured areas. And the noise that you hear in the background, background right now is the riven up of the helicopters. And the time is quarter to ten. And I'm here. And I'm supposed to be reporting this, and I'm supposed to be unemotional. But my people, my brothers in there, are going to be slaughtered. And it's very difficult to be a professional reporter this time. Our consular has been refused. 
admittance. And now one is going off. One Army helicopter is taken off. That means that they are now beginning to attack. You don't have to be in Vietnam. Vietnam is here now. This is it. Again, Arthur E. All of us said we were getting ready to leave, and I was the last one to leave the prison because they provided transportation to the airport for all the legislators. And uh, when I got outside, the newsmen stopped me, and they said, uh, Mr. E., what do you have to say? And my response to them was that, I'd never understand to the day I die why the governor did not come and talk to us. I said, we didn't ask him to come and talk to the inmates. We didn't say come and talk about amnesty. We said, come and talk to us. And then I mentioned, uh, I said, you know, this group included the three white conservative legislators from this area, Emory, Walkley, Senator McGowan, you know, Bobby Garcia, Herman Badilio, myself, say Clarence Jones, who just bought the Amsterdam News, you know, for millions, you know, I said, uh, uh, Tom Wick of the New York Times, I said, plus other people, Senator John Dunn. You know, we all asked him to come and talk to us, to stop a massacre, you know. And I said, I'll never understand why, you know, the man did not come. Early in his career, comedian Richard Pryor was broadcasting that summer on Pacifica radio station KPFA in Berkeley, California. He edited a series of New York State Correction Commissioner Russell Oswald's statements on Attica to create this bit that aired that weekend following Attica in September of 1971. We have some interesting things for you tonight. This is a little thing that Alan Farley and I worked out together. Uh, it's a comedy album. It's not been released yet, but it's going to be a monster. I think it's uh, called The Button-Down Mind of Russell Oswald, famous Attica comedian. And uh, I guess we're here now. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the star of our show... The funny man himself, Mr. Decision Maker, Russell Oswald! Let's see if I can review for you, if I can, um, a few of the things that entered into this uh, most agonizing and uh, decision I've probably ever made in my life. <laughs> In any emergency of this time, the state police would lead the way in because it was always assumed that, uh, and I don't know whether it's a proper assumption or not, but it was always assumed that correction officers being embroiled in, in a situation such as this might be vindictive. <laughs> Mr. 
in going in, and the state police, who are a tremendously well-disciplined uh, <laughs> and uh, a fine organization, uh, would go in coolly. And, uh, <laughs> Forty uh, killed, as you know. Forty uh, killed. Forty uh, killed. Forty uh, killed. Forty uh, killed, as you know. Uh, there are uh, maybe another 300, 300, 300, 300, 300, 300, 300, 300, who have some bruises. How did that false report, if so, I think, inflame the public generally and everybody, that hostages had their throats cut? How did that thing get started? Well, I've, you know, I've tried to reconstruct that myself. I, I would say now, uh, at the outset, that um, our own departments, uh, on occasions, did not report as well as we might have. <laughs> it was under tremendous tensions, tremendous pressures. Um, people were reporting at all times, no time to verify. Uh, the press was interviewing almost anyone who came out of the institution uh, who looked like an official or an unofficial uh, visitor there. There was a story put out by a guard that uh, these throats had been cut. There was a story put out by a police sergeant that these throats had been cut. I believe one of my staff said that the throats had been cut. Someone said I said they had. And so far as I know, no one has been able to prove to me yet that I did. I hope I didn't. <laughs> Someone said I said they had. The leaders never returned, but callously herded eight hostages within our view with weapons at their throat. Someone said I said they had, and so far as I know, no one has been able to prove to me yet that I did. I hope I didn't. Callously herded eight hostages within our view with weapons. At their throat. Someone said I said they had. Callously herded eight hostages within our view. Someone said I said they had. And so far as I know, no one has been able to prove to me yet that I did. I hope I didn't. Callously herded eight hostages within our view with weapons at their throat. I believe one of my staff said the throats had been cut. Someone said I said they had. And so far as I know, no one has been able to prove to me yet that I did. I hope I didn't. Hard to believe, isn't it? I saw a, the, a sniper from the state police who told me that a man was pulling a knife across this inmate's throat just as the takeover of the institution was begun. And that as he pulled the knife across the throat, he had about this much of the back of him showing, and he felt he had to get him, and he killed 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 him. 
And that man came into my office thereafter and was shown on TV, as you may know. The one with the throat was badly cut. Now, I did see uh, correction. You, you, meant a, you meant a hostage. You said an inmate. A hostage. I'm sorry. Several of the hostages had uh, had their blindfolds dropped around their neck, had been shot in the head. Uh, it was all bloody around the blindfolds. This was given to me by the pathologist. Uh, there was a sense of confusion. <laughs> Certainly, um, no deliberate attempt to deceive because the facts would come out anyhow. Uh, one has to be prepared for uh, possible difficulties. I, I think without question that there are some, um, some of these hardcore mowers. <laughs> who would love to start the thing up again and who will get support and what help they can from people on the outside? Some of the things those prisoners asked for, uh, you and I, uh, you would be shocked to think that they weren't getting. <laughs> for instance, how would you like it if you were told that you could only have a shower 52 times a year? <laughs> how would you like it if you only got a roll of toilet paper every five weeks? <laughs> How would you like it if you spent 16 hours, or 60% of your time is what I want to say, in a cell? One can't rehabilitate people by keeping them in cells. Hard to believe, isn't it? How, Mr. Oswald, would you handle a situation if there were an adequate mark? <clears throat> I don't know. 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 I really and truly don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I really and truly don't know. I really and truly don't know. It would be easy. It would be easy. It would be easy. It would be easy. I don't know. I really and truly don't know. It would be easy to say I'd do the same thing again, but I don't know. I I don't know. I really and truly don't know. It would be easy to say I'd do the same thing again, but I don't know. I... <laughs> It's never the same situation. You know, there's always, there are always some variables. And uh, I would have to look at it uh, if it came. And uh, God forbid that another one comes anywhere in the country. I, I pity the poor person who has to go through that kind of decision at any time. Agonizing decision. <laughs> I pray to God that this works out for the best interest of all of us. Hard to believe, isn't it? I pray to God. For you don't count the dead when 
God's on your side. But this worked out for the best interest of all of us. Hope you like that. After a week of interviewing inmates, the National Lawyers Guild held a press conference outside the prison wall. The speakers for the Lawyers Guild were Jeffrey Hass and Joshua Roth. Now, many of the general circumstances of the massacre of September 13th have already been made public. At this time, we have sufficient corroborating evidence to substantiate that inmate Frank Hicks was deliberately singled out and killed after he had surrendered and been placed in custody. Our evidence shows that after the yard was secured, Hicks was singled out by name and separated from the other prisoners. An X was placed on his back and he was led into a cell block by prison guards and troopers. He was never seen alive again. His name appears among the reported dead. The only conclusion that we can make is that he was executed. In securing the institution, state troopers and prison guards had been led to believe from statements released by prison officials that several of the hostages had their throats slashed and that at least one hostage had been castrated. These lies further embittered and enraged the guards and troopers who had been waiting for five days at the gates of Attica for orders to go in. Their bitterness and rage was exercised on the inmates in the shootings, assassinations, and systematic beatings which followed. The brutality on September 13th was accompanied by constant references to the statements of prison officials had and still so poisoned the minds of the guards that they continue to terrorize the prisoners in spite of the results of the three autopsy reports which totally contradict the official statements. Governor Rockefeller and prison officials provoked the police riot which caused the deaths of 41 persons and the shootings and beatings of hundreds more. We hereby call for the indictment of Governor Rockefeller, Commissioner Oswald, Deputy Commissioner Dunbar, Warden and Warden Mancusi, and Deputy Warden Vincent for assault, mayhem, and murder. We'd also like to make some observations that the persons in Attica risked their lives to expose the conditions here and in other American prisons. That the response of the governor and other officials is not to deal with the conditions and the terribleness of the conditions which was raised but it is to silence and punish 
the persons who raised those issues. Uh, Rockefeller, I think he is a complete murderer. Nothing else but a murderer. I know I suffered in all these uh, weeks and everything since. I hope this man never has another peaceful night's sleep. Never. Never. Attorney William Kunstler reflects on the lessons learned from Attica from this talk recorded in 1973. The other night at the law school at UB, there was a symposium in which I and a judge from Detroit Recorder's Court, Justin Rabbits, appeared, and there was a police officer by the name of Kirkland. And Mr. Kirkland got up and said, there's one lesson that you better learn fast, that whether a man or a woman has a good job or no job, they get equally hungry. And that when they are hungry and they have no job, they are not going to die without a struggle. They're going to seize food. Very few of us really starved or even hungered. Virtually every want is in some way met. There isn't a gnawing feeling of eternal oppression. There isn't the reaction day in and day out of being despised or at least feeling that you're being despised. There aren't the psychological trauma and the physical trauma of every day's living as a black person or a poor white or a Chicano field hand or a Puerto Rican in Spanish Harlem or a Native American or a woman and not feeling a great deal of this and not wanting to feel it or not being capable of feeling it leads us into making these nice distinctions they should have used more peaceful means of expression and yet in our secret hearts we understand that no one, probably in this room or this city or this state or this nation, would have ever given essentially one day's thought to prison conditions had it not been for those 43 deaths, that no one would really even feel the first twinge of understanding of what Native Americans go through had it not been for Wounded Knee. And the question that's a hard one to answer for everyone is when will people fight, kill, die, go into the valley for what they believe in and what they need? And when will the outside world begin to understand that this drive for survival 
is so powerful and so irresistible and so much a natural part of human or animal life that people will go to any length to preserve themselves and their brothers and sisters and that to talk philosophically about it or abstractly has no meaning whether you're talking about Palestinian Arabs or the people of Ulster and the Irish Republic or of people in Vietnam or in any of the former Portuguese colonies or in Rhodesia and the Union of South Africa and so many other places that crop up in the newspapers almost as if they are a regular progression of each other. And not to understand it is to lead to greater tragedy because the counter value is to oppose it with force. The counter value is to destroy it without concerning yourself with its validity, its reasons for being. And we end this program with comments again from New York State Assembly member Arthur Eves. But I want to say this to the brothers, especially blacks and Puerto Ricans, you know, those inmates said, you know, get yourself some knowledge, get your minds together, you know, you know, unite, you know, that we've got to be in every place. Those men understood revolutions. They knew that here they invited me a man who was somewhat a part of the system as far as a public official, you know, but they knew that everyone, if they have commitment, if they have commitment, this is why education is so important to us, because if we, if we don't get a good education, if, if we go through a genocide murdering system as they do, I'm sure, in the schools in New York, as they do in Buffalo, because they're just killing our kids through the Buffalo public school system, uh, you know, that they can't even begin to seek knowledge and truth, you see. And this is why uh, it's important that we own radio stations, you know, that we own newspapers, that we own TV stations, so that the truth you see, not the edited stuff that comes out to us, get out, you see. But, uh, uh, you know, I made a commitment to the inmates, and they said to us, go out and tell the truth. And they said, tell nothing but the truth. Okay, don't add to it, don't distract, and that's why, you know, everything I'm telling you, and if I say that, uh, you know, this is something I assume or something, I will say that. But other than that, everything that I've said has been what I saw, what I experienced, and what was told to me by Deputy Commissioner Walter Dunbar. Okay, now... Welcome back. And uh, that was a documentary on uh, the Attica Rebellion some 51 years ago, uh, between uh, September 9th and 13th of uh, 1971. That's going to conclude our program for today. If you'd like to have access to this program... Just go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, our program 
today uh, with uh, the music of jazz guitarist Greg Green. Uh, this is from a 1964 release entitled Idle Moments. This is Abayome Azikaway signing off and have a beautiful week.
Thank mm-hmm. you. 